Hey, everybody, welcome back to Conversing Labs. This is Reversing Labs podcast, where we talk about all manner of topics related to threat hunting, threat intelligence, cybersecurity, software assurance, and more. I'm your host, Paul Roberts. I'm the cyber content lead here in at, at Reversing Labs. And I'm very happy to have in the studio our own Matt Rose. Matt, welcome. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be on the podcast today. <laughs> We're really thrilled to have you. Um, your name, you know, you, 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 you've got you've got a reputation that precedes you. But for those listeners who uh, or viewers who aren't familiar with you and your your background, uh, Matt, tell us just a little bit about yourself and the work you do here at Reversing Labs. Sure. Uh, as Paul mentioned, my name is Matt Rose. Uh, I've been in the application security space, and I'm really dating myself about close to 20 years now. There was a lot less white in the beard when I started down my journey. Um, really been uh, in the space from the beginning and kind of origin phase of uh, SAS or static application security testing. It was with uh, Fortify from there, kind of beginning stages through acquisition by HP. I've also been with uh, Checkmarks from their build out in the US through acquisition by private equity. But really what I pride myself in is really working with organizations to define effective programs to find risk and not only find the risk, but mitigate the risk, because that's kind of one of the biggest problems I see in the industry, even after doing this for so long, that people are really good at finding stuff, but fixing it, mm, not so much. That yeah. tends to be more of a challenge and really like to walk people down that path and, you know, add some pop culture and some interesting references or analogies into the conversation to make it more conversational than presentational. Not so dry, right? Dry is bad. Tries bad. Um, so, like you said, I mean, you you go way back in the application security testing uh, area. Um, just talk a little bit about kind of how you've seen that space evolve in the last couple of decades. I think it, it's really moved from kind of um, you know very specialized thing that maybe was uh, you know large large companies or financial services companies did this to really just part and parcel of really what what every company is doing to some degree or another. But um, just talk about that a little bit. Um, what, how you've seen that space change. Absolutely. I mean, there's been an explosion of different types of technologies to help with different problems. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the application security industry as a whole has been constantly trying to keep up with the changes in the way software is actually being developed. New languages, new platforms. When I started in the industry, mobile wasn't even a thing. You were only dealing with, you know, waterfall technology uh, development cycles that were very plodding and slow. So you had plenty of time to do that. All of a sudden, we've added you know nitroglycerin to the gas tank, and now we're going at a thousand miles an hour. So the other interesting uh, development or release that we've seen just in the last uh, you know month or so is this thing called the Enduring uh, Enduring Security Framework uh, Practice Guidelines for Secure Software Supply Chain Security. Um, this came out of a, a working group called the Enduring, I can't, it's got some crazy long name, but Enduring <laughs> Security Framework, blah, 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 working group. Um, NSA um, w w is involved in it, CISA, uh, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, all put representatives in this group, came up with these practice guidelines. Um, I know you've had a chance to look at that and, um, and ponder it. Um, what can you tell us? Uh, what do organizations out there, particularly those, you know, again, selling into the federal government need to know about this thing? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to think about this, and this goes with, you know, the whole executive order type of aspect is 
software developed today, not, there's not one person in an organization that truly understands the whole application. You know, you're talking about cloud native development, you're talking about silos of development, component development. And what that does is it really creates unknown. Like I know my little swim lane, my branch of the main trunk of the release cycle, there's 50 other ones that are all together. And just having complete transparency of what's in there and what everybody's done is very difficult to find. And I think what they're really trying to say is, hey, you have to prove to us that you're not doing anything wrong. And this may be an accident. This may not be on purpose. You may be using frameworks that aren't approved or things like that. But just a stepped approach to verify um, all the things within the application are copacetic in terms of risk. And I think that the document itself does a great job. It's a very lengthy document. I mean, there's a lot of information in there, and I think yeah. it could be a little bit 60, more, 65 uh, pages or something like that. But yeah, I think yeah. it could be a squished down a little bit. There's just, you know, it's uh, to reference, uh, you know, the old uh, Seinfeld reference with Jay Peterman. Those are a lot of words, definitely a lot of words. <laughs> so yeah. you had to get through it. But I, I think that what they're really just saying is, just make sure that you're doing the right things at every step of the equation. And don't just look at something, as we said, you know, shifting left or shifting right. Shift everywhere within your ecosystem to find all the risk, the malware, the open source vulnerabilities, the inheritance of vulnerabilities with an open source just by the nature yeah. of the way they're built and have the people trained appropriately. And that's something, you know, being in the industry 20 years, we've said this forever. Train the developers, train people on security, and it's still a problem 20 years later. So yeah. why is this document, uh, you know, calling this out again? This is something that should just be part of every organization's process is to not only look for issues, remediate issues, but educate. So you're future proofing yourself in the best way you can. Yeah. And, and I think that was one of the things that struck me as as interesting and maybe a little bit different about that enduring security framework guidance that came out was the focus on you know, what people often kind of jokingly refer to as, as layer eight, you know, the, the developers themselves, um, you know, a lot of the guidance or guidelines were around, uh, you know, using static and, and dynamic application security testing, doing binary scanning, uh, you know, two-factor authentication and things like that for, for, you know, development accounts. But there was a lot of focus on, um, or discussion of, first of all, insider threat. Um, there was a lot of guidance around protecting and hardening development environments themselves. So uh, maybe air gapping or isolating development environments, um, you know, um, hardening development workstations so that they're, they're less susceptible to being compromised. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I don't know about you, but it, it, it's also guidance that has come in for some criticism, particularly from the sort of tech community sort of saying, look, that works if you're the NSA. It doesn't really work if you're, you know, a run of the mill software publisher, software development organization who has people working from home, people needing to do different types of things on their workstations, not just development. Um I, I, what do you think about that? I think it's a recipe for disaster, personally. So, again, again, again you're thinking about don't what I said your before. Punches, Matt. No, I, I'm not going to pull. I don't pull punches ever. Hardening workstations or making it more difficult to somebody to do their job is just a recipe for disaster. I mean, talking about any security technology in the space, you know, whether it's you know on the source code level, open source level, whatever that is, if it's a hindrance, if it's a barrier to success, it's going to be a problem. And if you're starting to harden 
you know, envi- developer workstations, environments, IDEs, and make it much more difficult for them to, to get work done. Because, yeah. you know, I don't know how you work when you're, you know, coding and things like that. It's like you code for a little bit, you do some things, and you think, and you ponder, and you maybe look at your other machine to reference something. You're like, oh, this Absolutely. machine's locked again. Yeah. Or now right. I got to go, you know, re-log into the VPN, or I got to put in a PIN or an oath token or something like that. Oh, my gosh, it's going to drive people crazy. And I get the security aspect of it, but again, where is the barrier? I mean, just, you know, don't let people leave and put them in a cement bunker so they can just code for 12 days straight and then you release them or something. It just seems a little bit over the top to me. I think that was the impression it created was this sort of, you know, hearkening back to the, these days when, you know, the the developer would, you know, kind of badge into the secure room and sit at yep. the, you know, the mainframe and, and do their work there. Obviously, that was quite secure. You know, you needed physical access and so on. But like you said, these days, you know, you're, you're developing your, your, your IDE might just be another tab in your browser, you know, um, or, or another application on your desktop. And, and you're, you're using that for a lot of different things that does create the possibility for, for security incidents. And we've seen, obviously, um, you know, uh, uh, nation state actors, uh, cyber criminal gangs, uh, are interested in developers and are interested in compromising development environments. So I guess what's the yeah. um, what's the happy medium there for development organizations to not uh, send their developers fleeing, but also address some of those risks? Yeah, I think that the you know being you know understanding the process and doing a little research on how developers work and finding a way that's copacetic and acceptable to both parties. Because I don't think, you know, the heavy hand of coming down on developers and locking up their workstation and hardening environments, you know, that's just going to create contention. But maybe have some sort of working session to identify what that would actually look like and what would be, you know, the most security you could get in terms of locking down the system and the most that development would be willing to allow their their day-to-day to be hindered because I think that's the only way to do it because you're always making an assumption when you don't know the response of the other party so I think there has to be a much deeper you know psychological um, not psychological but educational session to understand okay what would be the best case scenario and really you know mentioning that training thing I'm going to use the example on, on my, my board here you know the training example sounds great and the, the document goes through a lot of you have to train developers to code securely and and do everything but okay even if you give them the perfect training. So they're all, uh, you know, capable of understanding risk, but typically developers work on different modules of code. So if they code this secure, they code this secure, they code this secure. These are three modules that are all, you know, coded securely based on that training and everything like that. But when the package is actually compiled in a, in a, you know, real world example, these are all brought together. And all of a sudden you have a data flow that basically doesn't propagate an issue or a security risk until it's all brought together. So even if you train these people very, very, very well about what they're working on, you still have risk because issues don't really um, arise until everything's brought together from a data flow, entry point to execution, or malware being introduced that only kind of uh, comes to light when it's actually communicating to another piece of code that it needs to leverage itself. Right. So looking, looking at it at a holistic picture, and that's where I really feel that yeah, great. Developer training is fantastic, but the automation and integration of any security technology, application security technology, is important to the success. And that's something that needs to be thought of is it's not just about knowing, it's about things that you're not even going to know to look for because you're never privy to all the information in one spot. Totally agree. And and I mean, the other issue that comes up, of course, is is third party dependencies as well, which is, you know, you're, you're, you can have developers who create um 
you know, impeccable, pristine, secure code. But if you're also relying on open source modules and libraries, third party, you know, proprietary libraries um, that you don't have visibility into um, or you haven't bothered to assess the security of, um, as we've seen, that can be a big problem as well. No, absolutely. And thinking about it this way, too, I, I think the, the the push for, you know, open source usage and API usage is is based on a direct result of the speed of DevOps processes. Instead of releasing, you know, once a month, you're releasing, or once every three months, 10 times a day, 100 times a day. So developers just don't have enough time to reinvent the wheel for mundane tasks. So they're going to leverage the existing capabilities that are out there in open source or APIs and uh, functionality and other applications to, to get their job, and then they tie it all together. So thinking about that is, you know, this is a new kind of frontier in terms of risk because speed is king right now. Speed is king. You know, I like to say that, you know, software development is now with with aggressive CI/CD pipelines, like the social media aspect. I want it now. I want to know what you had for lunch. I want to know what you're having for dinner, where you went for your walk, where you're on vacation. The same thing is with the developers. They want to basically release that new feature because somebody wants a new feature immediately or a bug fix immediately. And, you know, writing a new component or writing a new, um, you know, piece of functionality that is already out there just is a waste of time. Yeah. Totally agree. So uh, in addition to the um, ESF framework, uh, about you know, two or three weeks ago, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, uh, came out with a new administrative memo. Uh, this is you know, following on the executive order that basically um, laid out for federal agencies um, what they need to do to, you know, comply with the executive order. And it, it really concentrated on, you know, the need for um, software publishers, get th- these federal agencies to get their software suppliers to attest to the security of the software that they were, you know, licensing to or services or licensing to the government. Um, they're self-attesting to this. Uh, <laughs> and which, you know, we could talk about that. They're self-attesting to this. Um, but there was some um, r- really interesting um, kind of guidelines there. Um, there was talk about potentially getting them to uh, use SBOMs, but, but not a requirement. Um, what, what do we think about this new guidance from Office of Management and Budget, and what impact is that going to have on the many companies that are that are selling software and services right now into the federal government? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a great document and described a lot of things, but to me, it's kind of like the fox guarding the henhouse, where you're asking to self-attest. Are you going to tell them that you have, you know, well, we don't really do the right things in terms of security testing of our code, and we don't know if there's malware in this package. We, you know, so that's kind of interesting. And they left it like, you know, the wording was very vague in that you have to self-attest and you have to self-attest in, you know, these ways or these ways. We really like you to use an S-bomb, but we're not mandating an S-bomb at this point, but there's going to be future dates that kind of talk about this. Or you can that if you can't do it, you can get an extension for a set period of time. So, okay, it's there, and I think people are really thinking about this, and I think it's vitally important because it just kind of is setting the initial phases of this. Um, but I think if they came across heavy-handing saying you need an S-bomb today, it's going to be bad news for a lot of different people. But I think that they were really just setting the stage to push everybody to a uh, S-bomb framework that is accepted by everyone. And I think this is their way to be a little passive-aggressive in it, not heavy-handed, but saying right. self-attest however you want, but S-bombs is what we really want. And if you want to make it easy on yourself, 
give us a, a, an S-bomb format that we like. Well, we know that the Department of Defense um, uh, sort of flirted with the idea of third party or independent attestation um, with their CMMC guidelines. Mm-hmm. And that kind of blew up a little bit because there weren't enough organizations to do the assessments. And there was kind of a, a, a sort of a panic amongst, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the software vendors of like, you know, how are we going to get this done? And, you know, particularly for the for the smaller vendors, you know, how are we going to mm-hmm. how are we going to be able to do this in time to be able to to offer our stuff? So I, my, my guess is they kind of learned a lesson from that and said, you know, well, well, let's not let's not start there. Let's start with this self-attestation, which is obviously easier to, to get done. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, the SBOM thing and SBOM, obviously software bills of material. Um, are those, uh, are those sort of a, a silver bullet in this, in this software attestation thing? Are they going to have the impact that people, uh, think that they're going to have in terms of, you know, again, laying out that list of ingredients or list of components that, that organizations can then use to, you know, kind of uh, validate and then uh, assess. Yeah, I think I, I've always been a proponent of SBOMs as being very important. I mean, the manufacturing world has used the same concept for many, many years, everything that's going into the vehicle or the microwave or whatever that is. But the thing that I think we've kind of missed is SBOMs, again, don't keep up with the speed of DevOps. So it's like you're constantly changing the code. So the files are changing. The open source packages are changing. So SBOMs mm. have to be an ongoing that's thing that's part of the CICD process. I have an SBOM for release 1.0, and all of a sudden you're on you know, 1.1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. I'm pretty much guaranteeing you that that SBOM is different from 1.1 to 1.2. There's something different, new files, new things in there. And the other thing that you know, people immediately jump on the software composition analysis, like they provide me with SBOMs. Well, that's just for the open source. I mean, you need a complete SBOM of everything. Every file is their malware, every open source package, all the inheritance of the open source packages, so on and so forth. So a lot of times people have to reassess what an SBOM truly is. And the format really has to be all encompassing of everything in that application, not just a subset like the open source packages. I mean, that's just my opinion, because I think that... Yeah. You know, it's a great concept, but it has to keep up with the speed of DevOps because the code's constantly changing. So the bill of materials is constantly going to change. Right. So, as I said, you know, there's been a lot of this guidance that's come out, um, you know, uh, the Enduring Security Framework, the executive order, you know, the various NIST um, standards and, and guidelines that have come out in the past couple of years. There's some legislation pending in Congress that would address uh, specifically open source security. So there's a lot floating out there. I think for uh, organizations that are selling into the government, this is sort of confusing um, to try and line all these things up. Um, what would your um, recommendations that be to software organizations, development organizations out there, what to pay attention to at this stage and what to prioritize as they're looking to, you know, uh, Again, get into conformance and get into compliance with with these guidelines. Are, are you a Game of Thrones fan? Have you watched Game of Thrones? Yes. So my, my comment to the software companies is winter is coming. Winter is coming. So, okay. Uh, you know they're saying these things, but you know it's already very complicated and lengthy to do business with the government in terms of yeah. you know getting FedRAMP, getting uh, all the things lined up to actually sell to the government, working with the integrators, all the I's dotted, T's crossed, so on and so forth. If they're starting down the path of talking about S bombs, winter is coming or S bombs are coming. I would say start today, if not yesterday, 
to start putting in the processes or uh, the kind of capabilities to create accurate SBOMs in an ongoing uh, kind of uh, way for your software development process. And that could be anybody. I mean, this doesn't have to be, you know, ISVs and software development houses. I think anybody that wants to sell a service or anything is going to have to provide this information and get ahead of the curve because it's, right. again, it's already very cumbersome to do business with the government. It, this is coming and you, you better well address it now than later. And I think the idea of the federal government or the Biden administration anyway is that, you know, that they, this will become a, a standard that will extend beyond the government, right? That yes. um, that the private sector will, in essence, start to gravitate towards these types of um, guarantees and, and um, attestations as well in, in private contracts. Do you see that happening? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I mean, if, you know, it doesn't if it's not at the federal government, it could be at the state government level, too. I mean, if there's yep. an issue and somebody gives you, you know, a, another issue comes up with a, a supply chain issue where malware is inserted accidentally on purpose, nation state, whatever that is, you may be having federal issues and state level issues and all sorts of, you know, uh, regulatory issues against that. So I, I think it's not that difficult to process just to be able to use automation integration of technologies, whether that's a combination of multiple technologies or a complete, uh, you know, software supply chain uh, technology to find everything, report everything and do that in a continuous way. Because that's the biggest thing is I think a lot of people are freaking out because the speed of DevOps, I, I keep harping on this, is is creating kind of a uh, you know, everyone trying to leave through one exit after, a, you know, a, a football game right. or a sporting event. You, you're all trying right. to get through that and you're all trying to figure out how to get out. And there's a big backlog. You need to actually kind of open that up and think about, OK, how do I address this easily with automation rather than, you know, manual processes or spreadsheets or questionnaires to basically put something together, which, again, has the, you know, the big elephant in the room, which is human error. I mean, what if you're putting these things together and SBOM together in a manual way and you miss something? It's not going to be good. So you need technology to help you there. In the end of the day, I mean, we've had this conversation before with, you know, PCI and other regulations. There's, there's always the sort of, um, you know, managing for compliance and, and managing for security. Do you see these guidance, these guidelines and, and mandates uh, in, the, in the long term actually leading to better security outcomes uh, or just more hoops and stuff for, you know, just more compliance work and talk, um, but but no real big change in terms of, you know, security outcomes. I As long as it's handled correctly. So an example I'll give here is, you know, I've been doing this a long time, uh, especially around the SaaS space. And the two biggest things when I was in the industry in 2005 was I need to find SQL injection and cross-site scripting. And this is on the mm -hmm. SaaS side of the house. Yeah. 2022, you talk to people, what are you worried about in your application? SQL, inject SQL injection and cross-site scripting. What right. has happened? Why yeah. is this still, an, you know, it's like, <laughs> This is ongoing for years and years and years. It's like we're just constantly playing a game of chicken. So I think maybe maybe a little heavy handed, but having something that really, you know, gives you all the information, lets you make assumptions on risk in a consistent and repeatable uh, fashion is important. And I think instead of people trying to create their own, you know, homegrown security uh, standards, policies, you know, posture, whatever that is, but having that you know, mandated at a governmental level, because again, the world's not going to exist without software. It just, every company is a technology company to do today. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a, a bank or a retail or even a bakery, they're all using technology to get their job done. If yeah. we don't standardize on this, like we standardize on other things in the world, there's going to be, you know, a lot of 
opportunity, let's just say, for nefarious individuals. So final question, uh, Matt, um, you know, like you said, winter's coming um, for organizations, whether they're selling to federal government agencies, executive branch agencies or not. What what would you tell them at this point to be focusing on and prioritizing in terms of um you know, uh, software and software supply chain security? I think it goes down to you don't know what you don't know and finding ways to answer the questions you don't even know how to ask. And I think that's with looking at the complete package prior to release. Because again, you're talking about very complex development processes that are siloed branches of a, of a trunk of a major process. And the final check has to be a final exam. You know, is, if, whether even if it's a banking app that a, a commercial bank is releasing or it's a ISV releasing a piece of commercial software, there has to be a check that verifies this is good to go or there are issues in it because we don't want this to happen again in terms of supply chain breaches, insertions of code, uh, solar winds type of issues. I think that there has to be that final check and that final check has to be industry-wide standard because a lot of times, you know, a lot of times people talk about their application security program. You know, who are the champions within the program? Who's doing the best things? They're all different. I've seen it. Like, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world don't do a great job at it and some smaller companies do a great job at it. Why can't there just be a standard that basically is the one check you have to do is to make sure that there is a viable package you're releasing, whether it's internally or externally, for malware, for vulnerabilities that are addressable. Right. This is what we do with, you know, uh, uh, vehicle airbags and things like that, right? It's not like Toyota and Ford all get to have different standards for how, you know, their airbags uh you know, protect passengers, right? There are standards and they all have to have to meet those standards, right? Um, hey, Matt Rose, this has been a great conversation. Um, before we go, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to say? I think the biggest thing is just supply chain security needs to be more mainstream and not thought of something that is more for the SOC or analysts, yeah. that it's just as important as all the AppSec tooling that you're spending tons of money on, resources on from, you know, as I mentioned, the, you know, the, the, the kind of, the pillars of application security, you know, SAS, DAST, IAS, RASP, SCA, all these ones, these acronyms, STAR, AST technologies, supply chain is just as important. It's, I think, maybe even more important than just finding vulnerabilities at the code level or at the running application, because, again, it's not just the potential. It is malware, potentially, and it can be propagated very quickly in a way that you can't control. We're seeing that all the time these days, right? I mean, those attacks on... Um, you know, uh, open source repositories and, and uh, you know, CICD pipelines seem to be becoming more and more common. So, yeah. Absolutely. Matt, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us on Conversing Labs podcast. I'm sure we're going to have you back soon. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate being here. My pleasure. Great to have you.